Hi, I'm Ilana Kaufman, and you're listening to Just Leading, a podcast where we try to rethink leadership within and beyond the Jewish world. Each episode, we talk to someone whose life's work is leadership, someone who is redefining what it means to be a leader in their community. That's Rabbi Lauren Holtzblatt leading a memorial prayer in the state capital for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg of blessed memory. Holtzblatt is a rabbi in Washington, D.C., and had a relationship with beloved RBG before she passed. Rabbi Holtzblatt has a rich life of her own and a remarkable perspective on leadership. I knew why I wanted to bring Lauren onto the podcast, but before sitting down with the rabbi, I was curious to hear what struck my co-hosts about Rabbi Holtzblatt, what they were curious about, and so I sat down with Ilana Ween, one of my co-hosts, to get her thoughts. I think it's really about taking ownership of our community and of our culture and of our nation's symbols. And I think that the confidence with which she delivered that eulogy with that humility, it's an important thing to hold on to. Great. Let's dive in. So Lauren, you and I met, I was thinking four or five years ago, back when we were Schusterman Fellows. And this is a fellowship for community leaders. This was pre-COVID. It was kind of pre the impact of the last administration. It was pre this current moment of kind of racial rupturing in this country. And I don't know if you remember, but when I first got to, to the retreat center, you and I both had on the same pair of Nike high top blazers. Yes. I do remember. Yeah. You remember this? Yeah. <laughs> They're purple like fake snakeskin. Or like- yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And I looked over at you and I was like, she's my friend. Like, oh my I God, just, I was like my people. I, there was no, you know, like who wears high tops? Like there, I just, <laughs> I mean, I'm a huge LeBron James fan. And so I watch his style like a hawk and you know, it's a little out of my element because there I am like on the Bima, you have to dress all nice. And like whenever I get the chance to like put my kicks on, I feel like I'm in it. And I remember we had conversations about that of like and, and, and you're a hiker. I remember that, too. Like we just bonded over be, both being in our physical bodies and also like these shoes. And I also remember like in this first connecting for us as fellows, like there was a lot going on for us as leaders. There was some rabbinic space that needed to be held for us in a learning community. And you did some holding of us. And I remember watching you as a leader and just being like, okay, she's clearly my people. And so I'm wondering like, before you got there and were that person, who were you as little Lauren? So I want to say from an early age, my mom tells this story that she used to find me sitting on our back steps and I would be talking. She says she would ask me who I was talking to and I would say, I'm talking to God. Um, and it's funny because it's not that I, it, I didn't grow up with a context of that. So I do feel like from the beginning, there was something in me that was like, there is something out there bigger than myself. And I obviously believed whatever that was could hear me. The town I grew up in was, um, it, it was totally segregated. There was like public housing in the middle of the town I grew up in. And it happened to be like mostly folks of color that lived in that housing. And then it was a very white, 
a white suburb. That played out in our, I went to public school and that played out specifically in our high school. I remember that, like you'd walk into the cafeteria and all the white kids would be like on the outskirts of the cafeteria and the middle, like there's like a middle long table. I can picture it today. And that table was always for folks of color. And it was like, you could walk in there and people just like went to their segregated spaces. And I remember like feeling like this is messed up. This is not the way the world should be. Uh, This is not how my parents raised me, even though I was being raised in this very segregated town, which thank God nobody's there anymore from my family. But I'll just go sit with everybody. Right on, right on. And then the question is like, okay, so you have a sense of the kind of world you want to create and the kind of person you want to be in a context where if we're thinking about rabbis, there's no rabbis who look like you yet, really. Like I was raised from the time I was seven years old in in a Jewish, organized Jewish communal space. I'd never met a, a woman rabbi. I never saw a rabbi of color. There were no queer rabbis. Every rabbi I was exposed to stood in front of a cathedral-like setting in those big white billowing robes with a big belting voice trying to command us and to command space rather than to engage us and engage space. And so like, were there role models for you at that time? Were there spiritual and rabbinic leaders who you felt connections to? We know that you and God were tight already. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Um, But were there intermediaries between God and you that like were some infrastructure and pathway to becoming a rabbi? Who like were there rabbis or spiritual leaders who inspired you? My mom had, so my mom was a single mom raising three girls. And so lots of like female empowerment in my house. And there was a Donna Berman, Rabbi Donna Berman. She actually I think she now is a a chaplain in Connecticut, as far as I understand. But she was a rabbi at a local synagogue where I grew up. And my mom had heard her preach. And my mom said to my sisters and I, like, we're going to go. We're going to go for Rosh Hashanah and you're going to hear her. And I was like, I don't want to sit in synagogue. By the way, it wasn't even a synagogue. Like, they rented a church. And I was like, I don't want to sit in a pew, like, for three hours. But we went and... There was like one of those epiphanal moments where I was like, you know, it's like you need leaders sometimes that you can look at. That's why I feel like Vice President Harris is so important for so many of us as women, is that to be able to like look at someone and say, I could be that. Rabbi Donna Berman, you know, she was she was very human. She was very real. She was wearing a robe, which I was like, that's weird. But other than that, she was very real. She spoke in a normal at, you know, she didn't, there was no rabbi voice. There was no billowing out. It was like, as you said, like she was engaging space. And when she sermonized, she would talk about very real things, what a humans feel, like what, what are the dialectical tensions that we are in the midst of? What are we facing as a community? What are we facing as individuals? And it was like, everything she said was like so emotionally full. And I was like, that's, that's something that I, oh, I, I'm, I'm, I was just enraptured by watching her. And I'll say to you, like, it, it was a very long time until I met another rabbi like that. So it wasn't like there were a lot of them. There was her. And then I probably didn't meet another rabbi like that until I was actually in rabbinical school, which was years later. Well, first of all, help the audience understand for those who don't know the work of a rabbi can be very diverse. 
And so like you entered the work of becoming a rabbi. What were you focusing on? What were you doing until the last three, four, five years as a rabbi? I got accepted into the rabbinical program. And so I would say like when I first entered, it was really about education. It was really wanting to know my roots. Like, where did I come from? What is this about? What is Judaism all about? Which sounds kind of funny because I feel like by the time you get to rabbinical school, probably you should have figured all that out. But um, for me, it really was the beginning of a journey. And I would say once I was in rabbinical school, then I figured out I wanted to be a rabbi. I'll just say like the first summer of my rabbinical school training, I worked I worked all throughout rabbinical school because I had to pay for it. But um, I worked at NYU Hospital as a chaplain and I was assigned to three units and it was probably the most grueling four months. You know, being with people when they were dying and being in the room once someone had died and trying to figure out how to gather the family together and what to say and what to do. And that stuff was like, I realized that summer, I was like, this is it. Like, this is, I want to be people's witness. Like I, I want to, I want to create space with people around these moments in their lives that they're going to go through. And, and our society doesn't have you know, we don't have a lot of spiritual guides. Like that doesn't, you know, it's like mostly we're, we're, you know, we live, it's a pretty secular United States. And so I felt like that was something I really felt like I could, I was passionate about. What kind of rabbi, like what's your job as a rabbi? Because you've talked about being, you know, in the hospital space and caring for people who are passing and their families. We can imagine you standing on the bima, the pulpit, the, the stage of the synagogue. Is that like, is that what you do in your work as a rabbi? You know, it's funny. It's every day is different. You know, there are some like staples, like, um, it's funny, like that movie, Keeping the Faith. Do you remember that movie? It's like, is that early yeah, 90s? Yeah, I feel yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Isn't it? You're revealing so much about us, Lauren, to the audience right now. <laughs> they know about our sneaker footwear, our love of sports, like our movies, our agent stage. It's all happening right here. But like we're whole people, right? It's like, that's who we are. It's like, and by the way, like, that's why I feel like rabbis that I, you and I watch so much of it, honestly, even to this day, I mean, I was on a call with a few rabbis a few days ago, and I hope this will be, you, you won't air this for a few days, so nobody will know who I'm talking about, but I'm on this Zoom and they're talking in the rabbi voice in the Zoom. And I'm thinking like, this is crazy. The like there are seven <laughs> of us on this call and you're talking like that? Like, come on. We we already I'm know like, what you really this sound is crazy. like crazy <laughs> with the like fake background of like the chapel windows behind them. I'm like, you guys, this is just a meeting. It's a meeting. You're killing me. I'm curious, like, well, tell us a little bit more about your relationship to Justice Ginsburg. Were you just like the house rabbi on duty <laughs> that week? Um, and happened to co-author an essay with her at some yeah. point. And then you were like assigned to the Capitol Rotunda. What was going what? <laughs> What is happening, Lauren? People are people. People grieve the same. People, their joy is the same. It's not about the same things, but like the emotion, people are lonely, people need help. And I was like, okay, it like very much situated me in like, I love, you know, I love intellectual texts. I love critical thinking. I love all of that. But like my job was like, I'm a holder. I'm a, that's what I do. Um, and if I can stay in that lane, then then I'm going to be okay. 
I always will remind myself, like if I, uh, you know, if I can stay in the lane of what I'm meant to do, what's my service? What am I meant? How am I meant to serve? Then I'm okay. You know, Justice Ginsburg, I met her in 2014. My husband was her clerk. Um, It was an incredible year in the court when the five to four went the opposite direction um, that it's been going these last few years. And it was just an, an incredible time to be there. And Justice Ginsburg, you know, her Judaism was very important to her. She grew up in in a in a home with observant parents, but she was not observant herself. Um, her observance is really in the values, speaking for those who are less seen in our society and feeling like she had a position of power and she should use that to raise others up. That was at her core who she was. But she didn't have a rabbi. You know, I met the justice in her chambers and she was very curious about my rabbinic career and about what I was doing. And so it definitely like it tickled her in some way. And that's how our relationship developed. She did come to Addis once a year with her granddaughter, Clara, who's wonderful. And then um, I would probably hear from her every, I would say, three to four months. She would call about something. Sometimes it was something philanthropic where she had been gifted um money that she was not going to keep, but she was going to give to an organization. And, you know, she gave a lot to Jewish causes and she wanted to make sure that what she was giving to was really supportive of where she was in terms of her thinking about her, her thinking about the world. At that point, I felt like that was the greatest gift of my life to be able to be of support to one of my heroes. So then like, were you on call that night? of, you know, tell us a little bit about that week and, and, and how you got to September 23rd. I mean, in some ways, you know, it's, it, 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 it will ever be kind of frozen in time because it was such an out of this world kind of bodily experience. I knew the justice was very ill, but um, the family had kept it very, very tight of how ill she was because she was trying like heck to make it to November. I found out with the world that night. I was leading Friday night services, Erev Rosh Hashanah. Our assistant director of the synagogue came downstairs, which was unusual because we weren't coming anywhere near each other. And she motioned to me to come over. And she said to me, Justice Ginsburg has just died. And my heart just, all of it, like just you know, my own personal hero, someone who I had a relationship with, someone who we all knew was ill, but we all thought would live forever. I mean, that's the truth. I went deep down into like the, my, you know, into the belly of my soul and was like, what can I say to this community who undoubtedly will is hearing about this right now? I just like thought of three stories of my experience with her and what I really felt like were stories that highlighted who she was to me. I'm going to share something which like is a little like not okay, but I'm okay with it. Um, Basically the next morning was Saturday morning, Rosh Hashanah, first day. And I don't use my phone, but I said to Ari, like, I think I should bring my phone. I just feel like what if... What if, what if I was like, I'll just keep it in my bag, like my little canvas bag that I'm bringing. And I kept it on just silent, you know, and it was two minutes before nine. We were going live at nine 
and the phone rang and I saw the number and I had memorized the court number because every time they called, I always knew, you know, that's them. I got to pick up. And I looked at my co-rabbi, Aaron Alexander, and I was like, you're on. And I picked up the phone. I walked out of the room and it was Kim McKenzie, who is her beloved assistant. And Kim said, you know, the justice has asked that you do her funeral. And um, we just need to know, like, will you be available for that? I was like, Kim. (laughs) And so that Monday I went down to the court, masked, you know, socially distant, Um, and I walked the court, they, you know, they took me into the great hall. They walked the the steps with me. I went to her chambers. I sat with her staff. I did a bunch of rabbiing. And then I said to Kim, like, can I go sit in her chambers? I just want to sit there. I, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. And I feel like I need to feel her soul. And Kim was like, yeah. So I just sat there. I sat on her couch, which I had sat on before I breathed in. I kind of like, you know, it's like, I believe in the soul and I believe the soul exists and I believe it never dies. And that energy is around. And I, I just felt like, tell me what to do. Tell me what you want. And all I could hear loud and clear to me was I want my Judaism to shine in these halls. I want this to be a space for my Judaism. And I thought like, and I said to Kim, like, is there anything, any advice you have to me? And she said, you do you. And so I knew I went home and I was like, I've got to do Psalm 23. It's got to be sung in Hebrew. I've got to do El Male Rachamim, which is what I would normally sing at a grave. And I got to eulogize her like the hero she was. When I watched you, when I listened to you, when I felt you eulogize and chant for and pray for Justice Ginsburg, I felt like you synthesized, crystallized, catalyzed, kind of an extraordinary moment for us as Jews in the United States because of all the rabbis and all the synagogues, right? It's, it was you, Lauren. It is you. Um, it wasn't somebody in a giant white billowy you know, robe. It wasn't a, a guy in a beard. It was you. And that moment for me, you embodied everything about who we are and the promise of who we are as a Jewish people in the United States. You embodied for me the importance of being Jewishly and spiritually grounded. And I think in some ways, perhaps you helped complete part of the spiritual journey that had unfolded that evening, those days, those weeks, those years before September 18th and then September 23rd. I wonder what spiritually sustains and feeds you to be able to do the work you do in the way that you do it. This is going to sound funny, but I have been in therapy since I was 11. I was a very um, difficult child. Um, I was a fighter. Um, all the energy like didn't know, that didn't know where to go and was angry at the world. I was raised by my parents, but I feel like I was also raised by my therapist. Um, I worked with the same therapist from when I was 11 until I was about 25. And so she... She's definitely in me. And now I've had a, a bunch of other therapists. I'm still in therapy these days, but with someone different because I'm here in D.C. Um, but therapy has been extremely important to me building my spiritual practice because it it is truly trying to understand the mystery that is within and how to harness the stuff that I need to harness and how to 
hear what's coming up in me. It it has been, I think, one of the most important spiritual practices of my life. Um, I will also say being in my physical body, which I know you also deeply understand this. Um, I have to run. I have to, I have a Peloton. We did get a Peloton. I'm like such a cliche. I mean, (laughs) I am a cliche. We have a dog. We got a dog. Like I just, it's, I'm it. Like I am so in that. Um, but if I don't physically move five to six times a week in a way that is intentionally, that is hard, like hard, not just like, oh, let me go for a walk, but I have to like sweat it out in order to like deeply get into like what is going on for me. Um, and that has become a practice that's that's really, really important. Um, you know, also say like, I'm blessed with an incredible partner at home. Um, Ari is a someone who support supports me. And, um, that is not usual. I feel like many times when women are in very public roles, it is very hard to find someone, you know, it's interesting. I've so appreciated Doug Emhoff and watching what Doug has said about Kamala and his role as a second gentleman. I have felt as a leader, nowhere near what she's doing, but watching what their partnership is and feeling I have that at home. And I'm also very blessed to have that at work. You know, my teachers are also in the books, you know, so like the 13th century mystics and who really believed that like all the information we need is available to us if we only make space for it. Um, Meditation is something that I do. I wish I did it every day. I would probably say I do it four or five times a week. Um, Not long, like 25 to 20 minutes, like it's not long meditations, but ways of like really grounding myself so that I can honestly, so like when the moment arises that there's something to be captured, that I can capture it. That's really what my practice is. Thank you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for talking with me. Um, Thank you for the conversation. Um, Thank you for the partnership. I mean, thank you for like rolling as a team. Um, This is what we get to do. And I also feel so lucky. So thank you. Um, Rabbi Lauren Holzblatt, Senior Rabbi at Israel Congregation, Washington, D.C. Thank you for this conversation. Um, Rabbi Lauren has a podcast called Awake that can be heard on all of your favorite platforms. And so I won't name them. But listen, get grounded, get connected, take what you need from Lauren's wisdom and her words. Um, And with all of that, Lauren, Rabbi Lauren Holzbach, thank you so much and Shabbat Shalom. What an unbelievable opportunity to talk with, speak with, spend time with Rabbi Lauren Holzblatt. I'm struck by the fact that we have this extraordinary leader beyond our Jewish community, in our national community, our international community. And that leader expresses to us, for us, this capacity to hold us as a community, to connect us to our spiritual, personal, historic roots, to connect us to the most purposeful, deep values in the United States, like justice and fairness and kindness. Each one of us is the sum of our stories, and each one of us has experiences that at any given time might seem isolated, might seem unique, might seem difficult, and after a lifetime, we get to thread them together and realize they are the the building blocks of 
who we are and our own version of extraordinary. Our goal on Just Leading is to continue making you think differently about leadership. Next week, Golly Cooks will be leading that charge. She'll be speaking with Representative Kathy Manning. You know, the interesting thing is I don't take anything for granted. Just Leading is supported by the Harry and Jeanette Weinberg Foundation. It's produced by Wonder Media Network and Ariella Markowitz. For more information on the organizations we work for, check out the Jews of Color Initiative at jewsofcolorinitiative.org, the SRE Network at srenetwork.org, and Leading Edge at leadingedge.org.